Well, good morning. Job interviews can be stressful. I'm sure most of you have probably been through the experience, and if you haven't yet, you probably will at some point in the future. There's a lot at stake in an interview. The interviewee wants a job. They want to find a good company to work for, good people to work with. They want to make enough money to live comfortably, support their family, plan for college and retirement. They want a challenging job with a clear career path. And the employer is trying to understand a few things as well. They want to understand if the candidate has the necessary skills, if they're a hard worker, how well they might interact with customers or other employees, and whether or not they will be reliable, respectful, creative, and many other traits. And most employers use interview questions to try and get to know and assess candidates. The worst interview question I've ever been asked was, "If you were a utensil, what utensil would you be?" <laughs> Whatever that's about. When I worked at eBay, I ran our market research team, and I interviewed people that were、uh, applying for very highly analytical roles.、And、one of my favorite questions to ask was, "How many potholes are there in San Francisco?" And I had a lot of really interesting responses. The highest answer I ever got was seven billion. I have no idea how they got that answer. <laughs> I had one candidate actually burst into tears. I may have been just a little too intense for them. And probably the funniest answer I ever received was one: the entire city is a pothole. But more recently, I heard a really challenging question. The question was: Tell me something important that you believe that's not popular to believe. Isn't that a great question? It requires a lot of courage to believe something when others disagree, and increasingly, it requires a lot of courage to tell people that you're a Christian, that you follow Jesus, or that you really believe the Bible is true. This is because Jesus taught things that are increasingly out of step with our culture today. And while occasionally it might be more comfortable to socially distance yourself from Jesus's less popular teachings, committed followers of Jesus cannot do that. Because we know that when Jesus and culture are at odds, it's the culture that needs to change, and not Jesus. And as Christians, we must be willing to hold unswervingly to the teachings of Jesus, even when it's not popular. Now, interestingly, while our society is increasingly secular, most people outside the church remain accepting of the idea that there was, in fact, an historical person named Jesus. And while they may not all agree that Jesus was divine, most people are surprisingly comfortable with many of the aspects of who Jesus is that we've been looking at this summer. Most are willing to accept that Jesus may have been a good man, or a good teacher, or maybe even a prophet. Some might even allow that he did some mysterious deeds we might call miracles. And while you might start to get a few funny looks if you start talking about Jesus coming back a second time, most people will just shrug it off and say, "Hey." If that's what you want to believe, that's your business. <laughs> But today we're looking at an aspect of who Jesus said he is that really does begin to make people feel uncomfortable. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, "I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." There's so much we could look at here, but this morning we're going to focus on Jesus's claim that he is the way. And we're going to try and answer three big questions: Why is Jesus the only way to heaven? What does it mean to walk in the way? And how can we be sure that we're hearing God? 
And as we do that, we're going to continue to take our cue from Paul when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that he resolved to know nothing while he was with the Corinthians except Jesus. He didn't go to them with eloquent speeches, but instead counted on the Spirit of God to create faith where previously there was none. And so this morning, as we focus on who Jesus is in his own words, we're going to trust that the Spirit of God will fill up in you any areas where you might be lacking faith this morning. Well, my name is Richard Rock, and my wife and I have been attending Central for 18 years. And I served as an elder for 10 of those years. And before we continue our lesson this morning, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge and thank our elders and Tim for their leadership. You know, it's not easy being a leader right now. And I was speaking with Bob Winger a few weeks ago. Bob is our newest elder. And he commented that being an elder is a lot more work than he expected. <laughs> well, amen, brother. I can attest to that. But you know, eldership is a high calling. Spiritual leadership is a high calling. And I want to acknowledge Tim and our elders for their commitment to biblical leadership. And I want to acknowledge our uh, hardworking and committed staff who lead their ministries so well. You know, one of the most important things that you can do as a member of this church for God's church at, at, uh, at Central Christian Church is to pray for its leadership and to encourage them regularly. So maybe this morning as you watch online, you can write an encouraging message in the message board or send a text or an email or call your pastors this week and encourage them in everything they do because they do help others find and follow Jesus so well. Well, with that important thank you and reminder, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into our lesson this morning. Father God, your word tells us that you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, that power and might are in your hand, and that no one can withstand you. You are our refuge and strength, and ever-present help in times of trouble. Lord, what more could we ask for than this? Father God, give us courage. We need it these days. Fill up in us any area where we might be lacking faith. And thank you for making a way. Give us eyes to see you clearly this morning. And give us ears to hear what we need to hear. Amen. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the way? <laughs> Jesus is explaining to his disciples and us that in order to go to heaven, you have to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is touching on a very relevant topic here because everyone wants to know what happens when you die, even atheists. And we all want to know if there's a better place after this life, and if there is, how do you get there? And I think most people instinctively sense that if there is a better place to go to after this life, then there must be some sort of moral standard that determines whether or not you get to go. So then the question really becomes, what standard do we need to live up to in order to do well in the next life? And while there's not universal agreement about what the correct moral standard should be, I think most people, when they're being honest with themselves, sense that somehow they're not living up to that standard whatever it might be. Maybe we feel this way because we know that we can't even lift a, live up to our own shifting standards, much less the standards of a perfect God or a superior being might require of us. And if we've fallen short in some way, then isn't it natural that we want to know 
What is it that I can do to make things right again? And this question, I think, is behind so much of the anxiety that we see in the world today. Because people want to know answers to these questions, and the Bible actually addresses and offers a solution to the anxiety that people feel when they don't know how to make things right again. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 that our falling short is called sin, and the sin separates us from God. And it's actually the separation from God that creates anxiety in us. The reason for that is because you were created with an innate desire to be in right relationship with God. But we can't make things right with God. But Jesus was able to, and he did. And so he sacrificed himself for us so that we might have a way back to God. But here's the thing. Jesus is not just a way back to God. Jesus is the only way back to God. Now, if you're already a follower of Jesus, you might react to Jesus' claim that he's the only way the same way that I do, with gratefulness and awe that somehow God found a way to reconcile me to him despite my ugliest thoughts and actions. But those who do not yet know Jesus, those who have not experienced his love, those who haven't heard how Jesus came to save everyone, don't necessarily hear these words the same way that you or I might hear them. Instead of hearing words of opportunity and inclusion, they hear words of exclusion. Rather than hearing an invitation, they hear condemnation. Rather than experiencing freedom, they hear judgment. And while this may not describe everyone, it describes enough people today that our culture has begun to shift to accommodate these new changing perceptions. In fact, so much so that in many quarters today, the claims of Jesus that underpin the Christian faith are viewed as narrow-minded, intolerant, and in some cases, even harmful. And increasingly, Christians are being pressured to abandon the most important claims of Jesus and instead embrace all ways of life is equally good. All forms of faith is equally valid. All perceptions of truth is equally true. And to set aside biblical concepts of right and wrong. But as followers of Jesus, we cannot set aside his teachings. Because the eternal destiny of every person you know, including friends and family who do not yet know Jesus, well, it's at stake. But why? Why is Jesus the only way to get to heaven? Why is the problem of sin so significant that it requires the death of Jesus? Why can't we just pay a fine or sacrifice an animal like they did in the Old Testament? Well, to answer this question, we really have to go all the way back to creation. And we read about creation in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And in that book, we learn that God created everything out of nothing. And of all the amazing things that God created, we are utterly unique because we are the only thing that God created in his own image. You know, Pastor Tim often teaches that we were made on purpose for a purpose. And part of our purpose as God's image bearers is to properly represent God in all that we do. And we represent God well when we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we seek to love other people the same way God does. Fulfilling our purpose brings honor and glory to God. But ever since the Garden of Eden, we've all fallen short of our purpose on occasion and sinned. And that sin separated us from God. But here's a question for you. Why should a seemingly small sin 
separate us from God just as much as so-called serious sins. I mean, why should telling a white lie or eating an apple be treated with the same eternal consequence as big sins like murder? I mean, if I'm at a friend's house and I knock over a glass and it breaks, a simple I'm sorry is usually enough, right? But if I've borrowed their car and wreck it, well, I'm going to have to do something much more significant to make things right. Although, I guess in my case, maybe they should know better than lending their car to a blind guy with no license. But aside from that, doesn't that sound right? Doesn't justice demand that the punishment fit the crime? Isn't treating all sin as equal unjust? I think to wonder things like this is normal. And God doesn't mind when we ask questions and earnestly seek answers. And the answer to this question lies in our inability to properly understand the true significance of our sin, especially our seemingly small sins. Consider this. If I draw a mustache on some random person in People magazine, it might seem strange or out of character for me to do this, but you're not likely to be seriously offended. After all, there's nothing special or sentimental about that photo, right? But if I take a family photo off your wall at home and did the same thing, or if I draw horns on one of your baby pictures, now you're more likely to take issue with my actions because the personal offense is greater. Those pictures have more meaning and value to you, and I'm going to have to work harder if I want to make things right with you. But now consider that I fly to France, break into the Louvre, draw a and draw a mustache on the Mona Lisa. Now I've defaced a priceless work of art. The penalty for this act is going to be really significant. I might even go to jail. In fact, I'll probably go to jail. So why do I go to jail for the Mona Lisa, but not for the magazine photo? Because there's a connection between the magnitude of the offense and the consequences of that offense. And that is just. But the same logic doesn't apply to our sins. You see, we think our small sins are like knocking over a glass, and big sins are like ruining the Mona Lisa. And in our minds, we think the punishment should be different. But what we don't understand is that from a spiritual perspective, there's no difference between so-called small sins and big sins. Even our so-called small sins are the equivalent of breaking into the Louvre, drawing a mustache on the Mona Lisa, and then putting pencils through her eyes. We can't begin to understand the spiritual significance of every sin we've ever committed because we don't understand how perfect God is, how powerful he is, how wonderful he is, how much honor and glory we owe him, how valuable he is, and how offensive it is when we don't represent him well. If we had even the smallest inkling of how much greater God is than us, we would be like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he comes into the presence of God and falls down on his face and cries out, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. But instead of saying, woe is me, like Isaiah, I took a black marker and drew a mustache on God's face, and then I did it again and again and again and again. And because our God is infinitely more valuable than the Mona Lisa, the cost of my sin is incalculable. Even my smallest sins are infinitely costly. And while somebody might be able to write a check for the Mona Lisa, there's not a single person capable of paying the penalty 
for their offense toward God. And this is why Jesus' sacrifice was required. Because Jesus is God. He is infinite. And only Jesus' death, the death of God himself, was infinitely valuable enough to pay for the infinitely costly sins of the entire world. There is no other religion, no other form of spirituality that offers a solution for the infinite cost of our sin. Every other religion tries to balance the scales of justice with some form of a works-based theology where they try to do enough good things to offset the bad things. But this is like trying to balance out a dump truck full of bowling balls with a single little BB. It just won't balance. And because other forms of religions don't have a solution for sin, their adherents remain separated from God and filled with the anxiety that results from separation. Only Jesus offers a solution for this. Only Jesus could pay our debts. And so only Jesus can say, I am the way. You know, the early church understood this. In fact, before followers of Jesus were known as Christians, they were known as followers of the way. <laughs> so what does it mean to walk in the way? Well, walking in the way starts with the decision to follow Jesus and accepting Jesus' free gift. And when you do this, you begin to experience two types of peace that your soul craves deep down. First, your sin is forgiven. And because your sin is no longer separating you from God, you experience peace with God. We read about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace removes that deep soul-level anxiety that is felt by so many people in our world today. And, you know, it makes sense that we need this peace with God because true, lasting peace starts with being at peace. I can't be at peace with my friend after I wreck his car and draw horns on his baby pictures until I make things right with him. And it's the same thing with God. So if you haven't yet made that decision to follow Jesus, you might ask yourself this morning, are you at peace in your soul? The second thing that happens when you start following Jesus is that you can begin to hear Jesus' voice in your life and experience the peace of God. Did you know that God really does want to be in relationship with you? He wants to talk with you. He wants to show you the way. But just as importantly, he also wants to hear from you. You need to know that God wants to hear from you. He wants to hear your questions. And look what God says in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. It says, stand at the crossroads and look. Imagine you have a problem and you're standing at two decisions and you're asking. And God says, well, ask me. Where, what, where is the ancient path? Ask me where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. God is telling you, ask me things. Go ahead. And later in Jeremiah chapter 33, God says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. <laughs> you know, as an earthly father, I might occasionally get tired of my kids asking questions, but our heavenly father never gets tired of us asking questions. He is ready and willing to share so much with us, more than we can imagine. 
And in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul tells us that because of that, we can, we can give up our anxiety. It says, don't be anxious about anything. And present those problems to God. And as we hear from God, as we walk in the good way that God shows us, we will begin to experience the peace of God. And I think this is what Jeremiah was referring to as rest for your soul. And so do you need rest for your soul this morning? Then walk in the good way. In Psalm chapter 1, King David, who authored most of the Psalms, tells us a little bit about what it means to walk in the way by first telling us what it means to not walk in the way. He writes, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. David is saying, if you want to be blessed, then don't do these three things, and make sure to do this one thing. He says, don't follow wicked advice, don't follow sinners down the wrong path, and don't join in with those who simply mock and ridicule and waste their days. The implication is that instead we should seek godly advice, be in community with other believers, and build each other up in fruitful ways. And then David says, be sure to do this one thing, meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. In other words, read your Bible and study your Bible. Listen for God to speak to you. And when you do these things, you will be like a tree firmly rooted by streams of water, prosperous, yielding fruit in season. <laughs> you know, the Bible talks so much about what God wants for you. And Jesus, during his time here on earth, spoke so much about what he wants for you. Jesus wants you to be free of anxiety. He wants you to be filled with peace, unshakable like that tree rooted by streams of water. He wants you to be fruitful and prosperous. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, this is actually why I came, that you might have life and have it to the full. <laughs> We've studied this verse before, and Pastor Tim has talked about this verse before. What is the difference between having life and having life to the full? Well, life is what you receive when you accept Jesus' free gift and your eternal salvation is secure. Abundant life is what you begin to enjoy when you start following Jesus and choose to do things his way through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus is even more explicit about this in John chapter 13, verse 17, when he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. God wants you to be blessed, and you can be, if you will listen and obey what he is telling you to do. But how do we know what these things are that Jesus was referring to? Jesus says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What are these things? This is one of the most common questions among Christians today, because we all want to know what God's will is. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we're actually told what we must do to understand God's will. It tells us that God's will becomes understandable when we stop conforming to the pattern of this world and start allowing ourselves to be transformed by God to look more and more like Jesus. Paul talks about this a little bit, and the words he used is that we should put off our old self, which is being corrupted by our old desires, and instead start listening to God and be transformed into a new creation with new desires. 
In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, it says, whether you turn to the right, the right, or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. You see, God is speaking to you every step of your way, and he wants you to hear him. He's always showing us the way. And while we may not always have our ears tuned into him, he is never silent. Another common question among followers of Jesus is, how can I be certain that what I'm hearing is from God and not simply made up in my head? <laughs> this is such a great question. And we should always check to make sure that what we're hearing is God's voice. The good news is that you can absolutely work and discern what is God's voice in your life. And the more you practice this, the more readily you're going to hear his voice. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. They know me and they follow me. Pastor Tim talked about this last week where there are, have been studies done where sheep know the distinct, minute differences in the whistles of two shepherds that might be trying to mimic each other, but the sheep know the voice of the true shepherd. And Pastor Tim talked about the Jesus as our good shepherd last night. And if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is saying, you can know my voice. So here are three tips for discerning God's voice from your own voice in your head or any other voice that might be in your head. So first, is what you're hearing consistent with God's word? God will never tell you to do something that is contrary to the Bible. But here's the thing. If you're not reading your Bible, how would you know? <laughs> so you really do have to be both sensitive to what God might be prompting in your life, as well as reading God's word regularly so that you can confirm it. Second, if God's voice always sounds like your voice, it probably isn't God. <laughs> you know, God is always loving, but he's also really challenging. And what God will call you to will probably take more courage and faith than what you would ever dare ask yourself to do. Third, God's voice is never condemning or critical. He doesn't sound like a scolding parent or an angry boss. He doesn't speak in ways that put you down or make you feel insignificant. If you hear a voice like that, it's not God's voice that you're hearing. Now, you'll come to learn to hear God's voice in all sorts of settings, certainly while you're reading your Bible or praying, worshiping, singing songs on Sunday, but also sitting in the backyard, looking at the stars at night, or driving down the road. And if you're having trouble, just remember, Jesus said you can hear him if you're a follower of his. And he wouldn't say that if it wasn't true. So don't give up. Keep listening. But I want to look at a really interesting moment that maybe you haven't ever considered before where you can learn to listen for God's voice. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. Here it says, The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the words that soothe the weary. Let's stop there for just a moment. Isn't that amazing? God will give you words to soothe the weary around you. That's just amazing to me. And it goes on to say, He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear like one being instructed. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and you don't know why? <laughs> Have you ever considered that maybe it's God who's nudging you awake? Why would God wake you up in the middle of the night? Well, maybe he's waking you up to put somebody on your mind to pray for. 
Maybe he's about ready to reveal a solution for a difficult problem at work or in a relationship. Maybe he wants to reveal something in your life that you need to deal with by asking for forgiveness or by making a change in your life. Or maybe you're just not able to find enough time to spend with God during the day and he's graciously creating time and space for you to be with him. Well, if any of these possibilities are intriguing to you, consider trying the following the next time you wake up in the middle of the night. First, don't just roll over and try to go back to sleep. Instead, discipline your mind to try and tune out the troubles of the previous day or the worries of the day to come. And instead, ask God, what do you want to say to me? If someone comes to mind, pray for them. If a work or relationship issue comes to mind, ask God for wisdom. If you just woke up from a disturbing dream, hand it over to God. If he brings a sin to mind, confess it. If he points out something you need to do, thank him and ask for power through the Holy Spirit to be transformed into the person that he wants you to be. But don't waste these moments. He will use them. And these just very well might become some of the sweetest moments in your walk with Jesus along the way. And you know what? If you fall back to sleep while you're spending time with God, accept it for the gift of rest that it is. Well, as we prepare to close this morning, it feels like we've really covered quite a bit of ground. But maybe ask yourself, what is your best next step? And I know this answer is probably going to differ for each of us, depending on where we're at in life. But we all do need to be reminded that God created each of us for, uh, on purpose and for a purpose. And because God loves us so much, because God only wants good things for us, and because God wants to be in relationship with us, he sent his son to pay the price for the sin that was separating us from God. And without Jesus' sacrifice, there would have been no way for us to spend eternity with God. Jesus is the only person that could have done this. And this is why Jesus can truly say, I am the way. And so as you reflect on our message today, how is your soul? Are you at peace this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you can hear Jesus' desire in the words that we've looked at, that you can hear the desire Jesus has that you will be blessed, that Jesus says, I came so that you might have life and have it to the full. Are you experiencing a full life this morning? If not, you might ask yourself, have you drifted off the good way? Did you take a wrong turn somewhere? And what is Jesus calling you to do today? Jesus is speaking to you this morning. Can you hear him? Maybe you already know what you need to do. Maybe you've known for a while. Jesus says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so if you know what you need to do, don't wait any longer. Or maybe this morning, you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, but you do recognize that you've fallen short and your soul isn't at peace. Maybe you've been trying really hard to balance out the dump truck full of bowling balls, but you know it's not working. And now you finally understand why. Maybe this is the morning that you start your journey walking in the way with Jesus. <laughs> to do that, all it takes is to ask God to forgive you. And if you're ready, you can pray a prayer like this. You could just repeat words like the following. Father God, I know that I've fallen short. 
and that I can't fix things on my own. Thank you for loving me anyway. Please forgive me. And today, I accept Jesus as the leader of my life, and I commit to following him from this day forward. Amen. Do you know what happens when you pray a really simple prayer like that? Jesus turns to the Father and says, charge his debt to me. I'll pay it. And once Jesus does that, your sin no longer separates you from God, and your eternity is secure. And if you just prayed that prayer, congratulations, you have started an amazing journey, and we're excited to be fellow journeyers with you. And the next step for you is baptism, and our baptistry is open. <laughs> if you want to take this next step, you can text JESUS to 408 944 5402, and we'll get that coordinated. We'll reach out and start working with you on that. There are so many reasons to be baptized, but the most important reason is that baptized believers receive the Holy Spirit, and it's the Spirit in us that teaches us how to listen to Jesus, how to follow Him well, and serves as a source of strength for our journey. And we do need this strength, because in our world, it is not always easy to follow Jesus. In fact, it takes great courage at times. But Jesus knew this. He wasn't, he's not surprised by the challenges. In fact, he said in John chapter 16, he said, In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus was victorious. And that is such good news. And because Jesus was victorious, he is the way. He is the way to eternal life. He is the way to abundant life. He is the way to victory and he is the way to peace. Let's pray. Father God, your word reminds us that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that your ways are higher than our ways, and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. <laughs> what an amazing promise, because you only have good plans for us. Lord, I confess that I often lose sight of how much greater you are than me, than I am. Lord, would you open my eyes that I might just see a glimpse of your glory? Would you give me right perspective on my sin? Lord, keep me from ever thinking that somehow my sin is less bad than it really is. Don't let me fall into the trap of comparing my sin to others because there's not a single righteous person listening today. We're all lost without you. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus to do what we could never do. Thank you for sending your son to be the way. Lord, we love you. You are our way maker. Amen.